Shrinkwrap Radio number 806, David E. Scharf, M.D., discussing international perspectives on psychoanalytic therapy. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now, here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is noted and pioneering psychoanalyst David E. Scharf. We'll be discussing his groundbreaking use of technology for distance psychotherapy education and training since 1998. We'll also be talking about his teaching experience in China and Russia. With his wife, Dr. Jill Scharf, he is the 2021 winner of the Mary Sigourney Award in Psychoanalysis, the most prestigious award in the field. Now, here is the interview. Dr. David Scharf, Welcome to Shrink Wrap Radio. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad to have the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, I very much enjoyed my conversation with your wife, Dr. Jill Scharf, MD. Also, you're a long not only your wife, uh, but also a psychoanalyst and a longtime collaborator. And uh, my Iranian friend, uh, you know, I thought, well, I interviewed her. Maybe that's enough. But my Iranian friend, Mahiar Alinagi, who is enrolled in one of your institute's uh, courses on child psychiatry, uh, insisted I do a follow-up with you as well. <laughs> well, he's very enthusiastic, so we'll hope we can live up to his enthusiasm. Yeah, he is very enthusiastic, I tell you. Uh, I've had a long-standing relationship with him, a digital relationship with him. And uh, speaking of digital relationships, I think we have a mutual acquaintance in, in the form of uh, London-based Professor Brett Carr. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah. So he's, he, yeah, I've had him on the show a number of times, and uh, he's the most gracious person. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He, so it's, it's so, wonderful. He's such an original thinker. He's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to learn more about you. Maybe you can give us a sense of your background uh, in terms of maybe where you grew up and something about your family environment and, and, uh, and so on. Okay. Uh, I grew up, I, I uh, grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, so I'm a Midwesterner. Okay. Uh, uh, born in 1941. So I'm now 81 years old. Uh, I, I grew up in a what was a kind of ordinary family, but it did uh, have an, a divorce when I was uh, 13. Um, both my parents remarried and had uh, had some daughters afterwards. But I grew up mainly with two brothers, uh, one of whom announced to me one day when I was about 13 or 14 that he wanted to be a psychoanalyst. And I thought, no, you can't do that. That's what I want to do. But I'd never thought of it before. It really is. His <laughs> You're just saying it reflexively, competitively? <laughs> Well, he didn't do it, and I did, yeah. uh, although he became an internist. Um, and I, uh, I I, went to college thinking I'd be an engineer, but I, it was Me too. Oh, really? Well, yeah. I, found, I found it incredibly boring. But the history in English, I don't know that being an engineer is boring, but but taking the basic courses was did not hold my interest. But the history and English were phenomenal. And so I became an English major with the idea of going to medical school which worked in those days. I don't know if you could get away with it these days. Um, 
And uh, indeed, I found that being a literature major was pretty good preparation for being a psychoanalyst. Sure. In those okay. days, you you had to be a doctor in order to be an analyst. So that was the path. Although during medical school, I got tempted by various other specialties. Say everybody who does surgery wants to be a surgeon, which I did for a little bit. Uh, and then I trained. I trained in Boston. I came to Washington uh, to the public health service to avoid going to Vietnam. Probably would have stayed in Boston otherwise. And I got um, it while in Boston during a child uh, psychiatry fellowship. I was introduced to the ideas of the British Object Relations School, which was not a school but a collection of very, very good people: um, Winnicott, Klein. Uh, others, Beyond was not yet kind of in the forefront. Um, and I thought, well, I'd like to go there for a year before I settle down to analytic training. So I did after my public health service uh, where to I was. To go to London? To go to London yeah. for a kind of self-supported sabbatical. You know, I'm hearing a little bit of every time I speak, I can hear a little garbled thing in the background. Are you able to put on heads, headphones that might be the speaker being picked up? Uh, Often Zoom is able to filter that out, but it feels like uh, it's getting in there. Let me, uh, I'm going to have to use Zoom to uh, switch. Yes. The microphone should be now the AirPods. Yeah, the, qual the quality is different, but it's still very intelligible. And I'm not hearing, be better. I'm not be hearing better. the garbly stuff that I was when I speak, uh, which was very distracting. And... Uh, Okay. Uh, just to back you up just a little bit, um, how did you? When did you first hear of psychoanalysis? Was, was your brother's mention, oh, or think, did you already know about it a little bit? No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't then as kind of a, a young teen. But uh, my English teacher in high school had us reading Freud, and uh, uh, my then one of my best friends and I were very taken with it. Uh, and he and I actually both went to medical school. We were college roommates. We went to medical school together and we trained psychoanalytically together. So he was, he's been a very longstanding friend, uh, uh -huh. but I think it really was that English teacher whose, whose fault it was. <laughs> but also, I mean, it was, you know, it was very much the hot thing in the fifties. Um, yeah. my, my parents had friends, both parents, both my parents had friends who were uh, prominent psychoanalysts and who oh, were very encouraging uh, about this. When I, when I was in college and thinking about it, I talked to various uh, people who were friends of my parents who were very encouraging about it. So yeah. I, uh, and indeed, that's been borne out in my, in my life. And where did you meet? When in this journey did you meet your wife? I met Jill uh, in, uh, in England during this sabbatical year. Uh, and uh, uh, we, we met in a professional conference on group relations, which is really like a two-week interview. Uh, and uh, then later in the year, uh, when I went back to London to present some work in John Bowlby's seminar, um, we, uh, we decided we really should be together. And she took a chance and uh, emigrated to, uh, to Washington, where I, to, where I had returned. Uh, uh, so after my divorce, my children were here in Washington, where I had been for two years before London. And uh, uh, it's, we think it's going to work out. Uh, now, <laughs> yeah, I guess. How many years has it been? <laughs> uh, it's been, uh, well, it was 1974 that she came to Washington. So it's coming up on coming up on 50 years. So uh, we think it has every yeah, chance. Yeah, yeah, it might, it might work out. You're right. And um, so... I know that you mentioned that, uh, that very early on you settled on a, the object relations approach. And uh, I always like for my listeners to review that because there are all these different sort of schools within the psychoanalytic movement. Yes. Yes. And, and I think it's hard for people to understand the, the differences, which are yeah. some are subtle and some are not. Um, my problem uh, in my psychiatric residency, um, there was a lot of analytic teaching because there weren't really drugs then. And yeah. many of the residencies, including the one that I did, uh, were very psychoanalytic. But Freud is, is difficult 
um, because he's he's extremely in a way kind of scientific, but I'm putting quotes on that. And in his theorizing, he really tried to take things to a kind of what I think is a pseudoscientific way that didn't make sense to me in terms of the relationships in the patients I was seeing. And uh, in my third year of training, uh, which was a year of child psychiatry training, we had a seminar with a guy named Leonard Friedman who spent a year at the Tavistock. And he introduced all of the residents and, and child fellows uh, to British object relations thinking, and it just suddenly clicked. Yeah, uh, And I thought this makes so much more sense. Now, Freud was a wonderful theoretician, and I'm absolutely not knocking Freud, but but what he didn't know about was theoretically he didn't know about the quality of relationships and their importance throughout life from the beginning. Um, he knew about it clinically, so his case histories are wonderful reads about the relationships in everybody's life and so on. But then he didn't credit that in terms of uh, the developmental impasses and fault lines. Um, and so when I heard about this stuff from from Len Friedman, I thought I, I really I need to go there. And that was reinforced somewhat when I came to Washington, where there were people who, who knew about aspects of the British system, especially as it applied to group relations. Uh, so there, were, I, there was a wonderful woman named Margaret Riach who brought psychodynamic group relations to the United States. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, I, I had some uh, teaching from a guy who nobody will know of named Ken Rogers, who had worked with some of the great people in London. Uh, who uh, taught us further. And I, I thought this really, really makes sense to me in a new way. I applied to the Tavistock Clinic, which was kind of the Mecca for this, to the adolescent department where I, I, I knew some people had gone uh, and they took me on. Uh, and uh, it really changed my professional life. So I was exposed to all sorts of people. Winnicott had died just before I got there, but people were teaching his ideas. Yeah. And then there were other people who were still thriving, including John Bowlby uh, and people at the Tavistock Clinic who really encouraged my ideas. Nobody knew much about Fairbairn, who's sort of been my personal favorite. Mm -hmm. But uh, I found uh, found somebody uh, who would teach it to me while he sort of studied it with us. Um, and uh, he was really quite wonderful uh, to do that. Uh, uh, Fred Balfour uh, recently died. Let me back um, you up just a little bit because I'm intrigued by uh, your mention of group relations and uh, uh, the, my own uh, graduate career at the time, I was very much into uh, uh, what were called T groups, which yes. and I think I think that came from Tavistock. I'm not sure. Not the T groups. Um, I don't know quite where T groups came from. The Tavistock model of group relations is somewhat different. And it's based really on Beyond's thinking about the unconscious organization of group life. Uh -huh. uh, so they did do a lot of group training that was a different model, but it certainly was at a time when groups had kind of been discovered yeah. and discovered to be very, very powerful. So regardless of what the orientation was, the fact that now groups were really used and people were thinking about what's the life of each person in a group and how the group influences that person. That had changed in, would you say, the 50s? Uh, and, and it really was very hot. The, the uh, group relations model is, is a very well thought out one uh, that uh, my wife, Jill, and I then used in school research uh, that, we, that we were both conducting in separate years in London uh, and then we used it to model the training we've developed in our own institution. Uh, so our institution has a group-based teaching and learning model based okay. on a derivative of group relations. Yeah, I, I was uh, <clears throat> in the 60s, I was very much influenced by the inner uh, encounter group movement and uh, and being in the Midwest for my graduate work at the University of Michigan, it was kind of a cross uh, a crossbreeding point in the mid, uh, middle of the country between national training labs in uh, uh -huh. Bethel, Maine, which yes. I assume you might be aware of. Oh, and, oh absolutely. Yeah, and, and Esalen. And those two 
cross currents. We had speakers come and speak to us as graduate students. And so uh, it really set the tone of my later teaching was to teach in uh, a sort of laboratory approach that is an experiential approach to, to teaching. Well, I think what these share is that they value group experience, uh, that it is a laboratory for learning from experience. Uh -huh. And then the theoretical basis for it is, I think, is different in significant ways. But we know that theoretical differences make less difference uh, than <laughs> other factors in doing psychotherapy, whether brief or, brief yeah. or long-term psychotherapy. Yeah. So that I think this overlap of using and valuing group life is very important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, keep going. <laughs> uh, well, all right. So Jill and I met in a group relations conference, uh, and uh, and that was a good start to our relationship, which we then decided should be, we should take a, a try of it. Uh, we decided that fall when I went back to London for a brief visit. Um, and uh, uh, since then, I I, I appreciated her coming here. She had to do, you know, legally required retraining, even though she was already at a consultant level uh, in, in Britain. Uh, and uh, she did that. She impressed me very much by being able to pass uh, the boards, which I felt, the medical boards, which I felt, you know, already being how, how far I was close to 10 years out from medical school, I didn't think I could pass them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, because they, you know, it was basic biochemistry and anatomy and all this stuff that uh, I had left behind, of course. But anyway, uh, she also trained in child psychiatry, which I had done earlier. Uh, and that's been important to both of us uh, to have that roundedness of training. But what we shared in the beginning was, was very much an interest in the uh, British object relations group of ideas. It wasn't a formal school. Um, in fact, her mentor, uh, for many years, was Fairburn's chief disciple. And he'd been medical director of the Tavistock Clinic for 20 years uh, before he returned to Scotland when she, where she met him. Uh, and uh, he became a mentor to me as, as well. Uh, and so I learned in depth in that year uh, at the Tavistock about the ideas of, of Klein and Winnicott, a little bit about Beyond, and I studied Fairburn a great deal more. Um, and I did school research, which was group-based about early school leavers, uh, kids who left legally as soon as they could at 16. And what were the issues in their families and in their personal lives and in the schools that led to them leaving school early and going into the workforce? Uh, and I wrote what was my first book about that called Between Two Worlds, from the transition from school to work. Um, uh, and I had, and I did a lot of school consultation early in my in my career, including when I was in Washington and in Boston too. I'd, I'd done consultation in inner city schools, uh, where I was very admiring of the teachers who undertook these very difficult educational. Yeah, literacy. yeah. What what did you learn in that research that you did? What's the thumbnail of the findings? Well, there was an overlapping of family and uh, family and institutional issues in the schools. Um, where these kids who were not the valued students um, had to make the, kind of make their own way. And it wasn't for lack of trying by the schools. I, I, I didn't feel like going in schools or the parents, but that these schools had a very difficult negotiation, leaving school early at a stage of immaturity um, and having to face a much wider world than their peers who stayed in school for another couple of years or maybe for six more years. Um, and that they really needed a lot of support. Uh, of an ordinary kind that we like to give adolescents. Uh, when I came back to the United States, I did a comparable uh, set of studies with schools in Washington, which showed it was it was even harder. Not surprisingly, in inner city schools, which yeah. were at a a much rougher level than the schools, the comparable schools. In and it's still a huge issue, right? That hasn't Absolutely. gone away. Oh, not not. It's, I'm sure it's worse. <laughs> yeah, we haven't made it. You know, it's a little uh, discouraging after all these years to discover how little of a dent we've it's made. 
And and one of the things that I experienced was how dedicated the teachers were in both yeah. both in London and in Washington. It, sure. it wasn't that they weren't invested and really trying against a lot of odds of poverty. And um, we know here, especially illiteracy and so on. Um, and I thought maybe I'd continue that. But as as my career developed, I really verged more into the clinical studies and I kind of dropped the school part of things uh -huh. just because I couldn't do everything um, and really focused uh, both on learning, uh, honing my skills and doing formal analytic training here in Washington, which I did uh, from 1977 to 1984. Uh, Jill was doing it during the same period, although we weren't in the same analytic class. Um, and also uh, really focusing on what I could learn about an analytic way of, of treating couples and families. And that was the thing I, I really became best known for in terms of our, my writing and our writing. We shared that interest from the time that we met. Uh, I think Jill grew up with her mentor, John Sutherland, really being very interested in applying analysis as widely as possible, not narrowly. Um, and that's uh, that stood me and us in good stead. So that in the last uh, ten years, I I chaired a committee of the International Psychoanalytic Association on developing couple and family psychoanalysis worldwide and comparing ideas about how to do it from different geographies and different theoretical schools. Can you so give us a sense? Yeah. Can you give us a sense of? You know, because uh, so many of us are still stuck in the the, the image of psychoanalysis being a, a patient on a couch, free associating, and all of that. And now you're talking about a fluid kind of a very fluid situation, uh, often a wild, wildly so, of being with a, with a couple or a family. How in the world is it analytic? Where does the analytic part come in well um my two next books were really about that okay. so i did the book in, in 1981 that was about i was working in a sex therapy clinic that i developed uh in a a, a women's medical clinic making abortion available just before roe v wade um, but they were screening all of their patients and and so i developed a mental health team and we were doing sex and marital therapy on those for whom it was helpful, uh, which was a small percent, but still a significant number of, of women and their spouses. Um, and, uh, and there I applied analytic thinking to sexual disorders and not just to sexual disorders in individuals and couples, but also to the legacy of the children of some of these people with sexual struggles, uh, showing how the children's development came from the same roots in the parents as the sexual difficulty. Not, it wasn't that the children were struggling because their parents had sexual difficulty. It's the same issues would show up in the child's development. So there was a, an analytic unconscious structure in the family that impaired, for some of these children, impaired their development. And then the next book that I did, Jill and I did together called Object Relations Family Therapy, which developed a whole theoretical uh, framework for applying dyadic psychoanalysis for a patient on the couch or at least individual psychotherapy to families and couples, uh, showing how object relations theory, which is, I haven't said this yet here, but I need to. The point about object relations theory is that relationships are central to development from the beginning of life, right from the first moment. And that it's relationships that the person is trying to make work both with parents and then others and inside the self, the internalization of relationships. And that is different from Freud's theoretical base, which is kind of linear and as though the individual is autonomous. And that version of psychoanalysis, that the individual is a kind of autonomous person who develops in a kind of straight line way. And when they have trouble, they just go back down the line that's based on 19th century physics and it, it doesn't work for us. Okay. What works is a cybernetic um, uh, model of how the person develops in the crucible of her crucial relationships. 
taking those inside the mind, and that forms the mind as relationships are taken inside. Now, wait a second. You said cybernetic, and that I have no idea what you are implying by that word. Yeah, that's the good idea that we try to break that word down. What yeah. I mean is that the child and the parents are in a continuous feedback loop with uh -huh. each other. So the okay. parent influences the child, and the child influences the parent, and it's going both ways all the time. Yeah. So the, and you also the child take. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. You well, you also said that your earlier work showed a generational thing going on, which made me think of about some of the current thinking and trauma work, where That's they're right. talking about generational trauma. Um, well, actually, the birthplace of a lot of that trauma work and the transgenerational transmission of trauma is. is <clears throat> was based on the work uh, of an uh, Argentinian analyst named Enrique Pichon Riviere, who, uh, who really developed that idea uh -huh. in the 40s and 50s. Uh -huh. And so many of the people in the analytic world who really began to understand the transmission of trauma uh, had been trained by him. Okay. Uh, I came, Jill and I came across his work rather late, about 15 years ago. But it it actually filled out something that was missing in our own in our own theorizing, um, because what it said is that people absorb things from their parents. They are, however, in continuous interaction with their parents, not just unconsciously, which is what analysis is focused. Yes, on, right. But but consciously as well, and the interact the live interactions between bodies uh, in speech actually continue to mold people throughout life. And in any group, the person is formed by the group and the group is formed by each of the people. Yes. Uh, and that this goes on continuously and it's real-time events, not simply the past history, but the past history is transmitted in this way. Yeah, yeah, so I get that. And I, it's, so it's a very dynamic process. And as you point out, uh, much of it is unconscious, but not all of it. And but the unconscious, all. of course, speaks to to a key psychoanalytic idea. And uh, to not lay it all to the unconscious is an updating, maybe. That's an update. I think that's yeah. an update. Yeah. Uh, ab absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So... Now, I also want to get into the international work that you've done. I mean, you and Jill formed a an institute for teaching, right? For teaching yes. psychoanalytic ideas. So beginning in 1987, I became director of the Washington School of Psychiatry, which is a very longstanding uh, psychodynamic institution, first formed by Harry Stack Sullivan oh, yes. uh, in uh, the 30s. Um, but had become uh, very interested in these ideas. And both of us had taught there for, for a number of years, for about more than 10 years before that. Um, and uh, there we developed the precursor to the program that uh, we have used in our own institute. Uh, and uh, this, uh, so we set up our institution in 1994, now 28 years ago. Um, that is based on object relations theorizing and clinical work and on a group model of how learning is done. So we think of it as a teaching and learning institution in which it's not just the students who are supposed to learn, but the faculty as well. Yeah, and good for you. <laughs> and when the faculty is open to learning, it's better yeah. for the students as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we use, we use these groups that we developed that are a derivative of the group relations model so that... Uh, all our major programs have what we call group affective model groups uh, in which the group uh, helps the students to metabolize, to digest what they're trying to learn by comparing it with their own personal experience and their own yeah. clinical experience and the ideas that are being presented. Um, and they, they're free to chew them over together in a group. Yeah, that's an, great a, because, a uh, because we all have a certain resistance to learning right? That are the things that we've learned previously and 
that were hard won (laughs) in the first place are very hard to let go of, right? To let anything new in. And the other thing I want to highlight in in what you're describing is the, the egalitarian nature of the setup because the images that I have of psychoanalytic folks are, are at least thinking as presented in, in, in the theory books and all, and as I experienced in graduate school, was pretty authoritarian. Yeah, I and, agree with you. Yeah, so this, this is a, a new div- and wonderful development that you've championed in your career. Well, our experience in training was that although we, we had some wonderful teachers in analytic training and so on, but the institution was very uh, authoritarian mm-hmm. and didn't pay much attention to the experience of the students right. uh, who were supposed to learn and shut up. Uh, yes, and right. uh, uh, we set out to do things very differently. Yes. So we, we thought, well, our students really are our best consultants. And if something's not going well with them, we better hear it from them and we better think about it. Now, it's not always that we decide to change how we do something, but very often uh, they know what's not going well. So they're our most important consultants. And of course, we want to be open to learning too. We learn from them, including uh, how to help them better. We learn what they need, but it's more than that. Uh, people come into analysis, they're mature adults. They're at least in their mid twenties and often in their forties, fifties, sometimes sixties. Sure. They know a lot about life. It really yeah. doesn't make sense to act like they are naive children. Right. Oh yeah. It, you know, I've sort of identified with the humanistic psychology movement. And uh, to me, this sounds very compatible with the humanistic worldview. I yeah. think it is. Yeah. yeah. That's that's wonderful. So you managed to take this approach online very well, early. Another, we did. <laughs> well, when when we both when we left the Washington School of Psychiatry, we had we had the program there and we had wanted to make it a distance learning program in a more thorough way, including setting up chapters in other cities and so on. But the board there really didn't want to do that. Um, So we left. And uh, right from the beginning, we were able to establish some uh, affiliated centers where the students would come in from there, but they would also have learning there. Now, this was before the days of the Internet. So there were things we did on the phone, but not a lot. Mainly, it was a distance learning institution, meaning people came came to Washington. It wasn't quite as expensive then to travel. and we had a very dedicated group. Our largest single group was from Panama, uh, uh, who we, a group of students we valued very, very highly. Uh, uh, but then in about, I think it's about 1998, um, the beginnings of the internet sort of showed up. And I realized we could have teachers we valued from London or from anywhere, uh, but we just, uh, the, the, the equipment then would only connect four places unless you spent an enormous amount of money. So you could spend a fair amount of money and connect four learning sites. So we partnered with the Tavistock Clinic uh, and that meant we could have anybody we wanted from London who could go there and teach us. Yeah. And we, and we, uh, we had a group in Salt Lake that were a new group. So that was another center. Washington was the third. And then we had a group in Long Island. So we had four sites now, to, we could have had 20 sites, but it probably would have cost us $20,000. Uh, I'm remembering that you were originally going to be an engineer. And I think somehow <laughs> that that proclivity is is finding an outlet. Uh, I think you're, you're right. Describing. I think you're right about it. Nobody yeah. said that to me before. I appreciate that. Uh-huh. Uh, you know what else I wasn't going to be was a businessman. But it turns out when you found an institution, you're a businessman. My, yeah. my father and my stepfather were businessmen, and I was very contemptuous of it. Turned out they knew a lot of good things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I no longer feel that way about, about them. And we did get along. What the, but um, anyway, so the beginning, it was difficult. There were lots of glitches, people falling offline. But we, we found out how much we could learn doing it that way and how valuable yes. it was. Yes. And that this connection, this reciprocal connection with the Tavistock was the beginning. And then as the internet developed, 
eventually, by about 15 years ago, we could have infinite numbers of connections. So when that developed, then the whole thing just kind of exploded. And since then, we've had teachers from around the world and students around the world. And, and we were certainly were the first group in our field uh, to do this. One of my board members, when I, when I asked for the money from the board to do this, they said, you know, there's considerable wisdom in being the second person to do something. <laughs> but I, pioneers I get of, arrows in their back <laughs> exactly exactly but but we pushed ahead and actually it's worked and so now uh we really have students and we have teachers from around the world but we have students from from everywhere yes. so in programs we're doing now we have people from china and japan and south america and uh, europe and it's been quite wonderful yeah well, you must have learned a lot about uh, national differences in terms of how they, how their countries and their whole worldview interacts with the uh, Western psychoanalytic model. Uh, I would imagine there'd be some differences there between. Oh, uh, very, yeah. very major differences. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. My, so my most recent book uh, in 2021 is Marriage and Family in Modern China, okay. uh, which is a psychoanalytic exploration of the culture, the history of traumas, the impact of government policy, all of this on the interior of the family and the individual from a psychoanalytic point of view. Uh, because uh, uh, Jill and I have been going to China since 2007, and we've been interviewing patients there intensively. Uh, especially couples and families. Um, and so over time, I, I developed a kind of anthropological psychoanalytic sample of more than 20 families in real depth. Plus, we've supervised many, many students. Yeah. So you, you get a lot of data that way as well. Um, and the cultural differences are very significant uh, and very important to understand both for treating a patient or a couple and for training people. Uh, so it really helps us develop a cultural humility and a need to for them to educate us. Yeah, 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 cultural humility. So uh, what have, can you maybe give us some of the top line learning that uh, that about your understanding of of uh, Chinese culture and psychoanalytic sure. understanding? Well, I mean, I think most people know that uh, Chinese morality, it's the deep structure of its thinking, is based on group loyalty to the family, yeah. to the larger group, to the emperor through the ages. Um, uh, and that that is a very different morality than thinking you should be autonomous and you should go for it yourself. And yes, your family is important, but it's important how they help you develop as an individual. So historically, and until recently, the development of the individual was not what was emphasized in China, but the individual's role and loyalty to the group. That's a very major difference. They're right. not religious, but they have this kind of morality that is so different from ours. Yeah. It goes along with their being much more shame-based as a culture. They don't want to <coughs> damage, they don't want to damage the group so that if they do something wrong, it's a matter of losing face with the group as opposed to our being more guilty if we've hurt somebody. Uh, and, and that difference, even though it's, it's narrowing, it's still there in the deep structure. They also have a difference between until, you know, it was until 1950, marriages were mainly arranged by parents and matchmakers. Yeah. So it's not been very long that they, since they've moved to a more free choice or romantic form of choosing partners, and they're not that good at it. Neither are we, but they're worse. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't have the depth of experience. Uh -huh. uh, so they often choose partners on a very superficial basis. He's a good earner. Uh, or, uh, he's very intelligent. He'll take good care of me, but not, not the space to develop unconscious fit. Yeah. It's what really determines the long-term prospects for a man. Yeah. Uh, so those are some of And they have a, they have a, a tremendous history of trauma. Uh, a lot of cruelty in the parenting often uh, because parents have been traumatized themselves. Um, 
all sorts of differences. On the other hand, it's a very resilient group of people, uh, very intelligent. Uh, I have many good friends there uh, who are very warm uh, and uh, who are engaged in the project of understanding each other, uh, us and them. Um, uh, and uh, they are moving to what we would recognize as a more Western form of forming marriages and, uh, and so on. But they're so marked. Pardon me. So Allergies. By the, I, I, yeah. They're so marked by the one-child policy, which meant that they went from large male-dominated families to one child. That was good for the girls because now they were valued yeah. uh, when they hadn't been. Um, and uh, and it's the, I think it's the largest social engineering project in human history that sort of on day one, all of the middle class of China could only have one child. Uh, it's a major shakeup. And you also have done um, work in Russia. And of course, right now, Russia is very much on our minds because of the, what's going on in the Ukraine. And uh, so <clears throat> you can tell us about that work and maybe what some of your thoughts are about the Ukraine situation. And uh... Sure. Yes, um, we Jill and I had been there about uh, almost twenty years ago, but nothing. There was no particular follow up, and then, uh, starting uh, I think six seven years ago, uh, I was invited to be re-involved with uh, teaching Chinese uh, Russian colleagues, um, and it's led to having uh, two training programs there, uh, one in family and couple, uh, and one in individual psychotherapy. Uh, which a, a colleague, Janine Wanless, runs the individual one, and I run the couple and family, but we both teach together in both programs. Uh, this week actually is, an, is a week of intensive teaching to both programs in Russia. Um, funnily enough, there's more of a sense of trauma in the Russian family history than even in China. It's a very, very traumatized society. And that's true in the poverty, which I know less about because I, we don't see poor patients. I don't supervise. Our, our therapists are not seeing very poor patients. Um, but uh, there's so much trauma and uh, kind of concreteness in many of the Russian patients that I, I think that it really is a hallmark of the amount of trauma that went on right through the 20th century. Uh, Stalin being the worst, of course, um, and that all these families who grew up in families where there was surveillance and people could turn on you and all this, it really, it really shines through. So our clinicians uh, really have to deal with that wow, as, yeah. as a hardening of personality. Now, all of that is different from what's happening in the war with U Ukraine, which is terrible. Uh, it's terrible for Ukraine. And many of our students were from Ukraine because these two countries are so enmeshed in a perfectly good way um, that many of the Russians have Ukrainian families. They certainly have all have Ukrainian friends. Um, and uh, although the Ukrainians speak Russian, they, they also speak Ukrainian. And this was a treasured neighboring country. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, so our students and our colleagues there, I'd say 98% of them really hate this war. Uh, and uh, they're ashamed of Russia. Right. Uh, they haven't, they never liked Putin anyway. Um, and uh, I mean, they always thought he was a thug. Uh, so, uh, so they really are traumatized too by the war. Sure. Uh, they, uh, many of their patients are in extremists. If they have patients in Ukraine, of course, they're worried about their lives and their safety and so on. So it's, it's been a traumatic factor in the trainings we do as well. Not for everybody, but for many people. A couple of people left the courses because uh, the program director who I work with said, we're against this war. And if, if you feel otherwise, you're free to leave the training and we'll give you your money back. And a couple of people left, but otherwise people have been, they've been very supportive. One of my colleagues here in the uh, International Psychotherapy Institute has been doing town halls with Ukrainians 
Russians and Westerners to be able to talk about all these things. That's a that culture of that large group is against the war and very supportive of Ukrainians and of the trouble with the Russians. And it includes people from the West, from here as well. Is that uh, an that, online? Uh, uh, they've been doing it online, online yeah. with translation, both from Russian and Ukrainian. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's been very, very moving. Uh, people have been able to talk imagine. about what this war does to them and uh, how they're struggling and to be sympathetic with each other across national boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, so important. In a note to me, uh, you mentioned, um, I'm trying to read with my, a little visually challenged right now, empty heart disease in China oh. and the West. Tell them, what, what was that alluding to? Uh, well, uh, uh, recently, this, situ- this sort of syndrome was described about uh, students, particularly at Peking University and the elite, which is the most elite university, of students who would be so ambitious and just uh, working like mad to get to a top university and get there and find that they were kind of empty. Uh, That now they'd got what they were aiming for, but they didn't have a sense, a real sense of purpose in life. And there was kind of an emptiness or anomie inside um, that uh, we see similar things in the West in terms of people who feel empty and that their life has suddenly become without purpose. And, and yeah, so people on. on the corporate treadmill who, who it's all about achievement. It's all about achievement and getting to the top. So it's, it's kind of the same thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And they ignore their families and so on. And they get there and they find there's nobody around them yeah. emotionally. Um, uh, and that uh, that specific, we gave that talk at the Freud Museum uh, in May uh, because there, the exhibit at the Freud Museum, which is just closing now, was Freud and China. Uh, Freud never went to China, but uh, but he did have a whole large group of Chinese small Chinese sculptures among the things that were on his desk and that he valued very highly. Um, and of course, Freud has come to be enormously important in China. There was there was an interest in analysis at the beginning in the 20s and 30s, which Mao shut down, of course. But beginning with the opening up in 19, about 1980, there's just been an enormous interest in psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic therapy. <clears throat> and it's actually the most popular form of therapy wow. and a very rapidly growing industry. Um, so this exploration of uh, of this one way of applying analytic ideas to what has been named as a typically Chinese way of putting a suffering uh, was something that we went to the Freud Museum and talked about in a conference that was largely attended online. Uh, but we were at we had the pleasure <clears throat> of being at the Freud Museum, getting the VIP tour of Freud's things on his desk. Uh, inside the alarm zone, uh, and we had a really lovely time. It was really quite an honor. Yeah, yeah, nice. Now, uh, you talk about, you you and your wife were pioneers, really, of distance learning, and particularly of internet online learning, and uh, you have some ideas of, and now, due to COVID, it seems like there's been a major shift, you know, in work life that Absolutely. may not go back ever completely. And you talk about uh, uh, online therapy being done well and online therapy b- being done poorly. Uh, I think that's right. Yeah. So. Um, for instance, the the International Psychoanalytic Association really took a stance against online therapy with all kinds of privacy concerns and so on. As soon as COVID hit, they were the first out of the box to say, all right, well, here's how you have to do it. Now, I mean, we were already, we've been doing it for 25 years, but um, so there is this major quantum leap. Um, This is always going to be part of practice now. Before COVID, only 20% of uh, well-trained therapists were doing 
any significant amount of online work. Now it's 100%. Um, and while there are many people who want to go back to mainly in office work, many of the patients don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, now, as you know, I'm sure Jill has edited four volumes and written a number of significant articles <clears throat> about the theoretical shifts that are needed, how to really evaluate competent online distance therapy and so on. And we need to do that just as we were previously exploring how to best do individual psychotherapy. What does the use of the couch mean when that's involved and so on? We were doing all those studies. Now it has to be comparisons between in-room and online uh, work and all these things that um, are ways of really understanding the new world that we're, that we're in. It's, it is new. And also there are issues of how uh, prone this is to be done badly. Uh, so corporations uh, like MySpace, CVS are saying, we have 20,000 therapists. You can have your choice, but they can't vet these people. Uh, they're subject to corporate restraints and all the restraints that the insurance industry has done really badly uh, about medicine and psychotherapy. Yeah, and yeah. so we certainly worry about that. You still need a well-trained therapist who knows what's up and knows when they don't know what they're doing and all these things. It's not going to be different in terms of the need for really good training. Yeah. You know, I think Jill made the remark that's really still with me of, uh, <clears throat> of sort of uh, discounting this kind of contact saying, well, it's too bad we can only speak virtually. And uh, she really countered that with, wait a second, we are in, in contact right now, you know, to, to human beings, uh, heart to mind to mind, heart to heart. And uh, that was kind of an, a, a shocking eye-opener when she said that. Well, you think it's but true? But I, I, I thought it's true. It's like that's partly why I like doing these interviews, you know. Exactly. I, I get contact with people, but otherwise be very isolated. Well, I, I mean, I feel that. I feel you and I are getting to know each other. And if yeah. we did this every day for a year, we would know each other a <laughs> yeah. lot better. Right. Uh, and now, and I think for some patients... There are even a group of patients for whom it's better, uh, that they're frightened about being in the room with somebody. Some patients won't leave their house. Sure. Uh, and, and, and there are patients for whom it's not as good, for sure. Uh, I have patients who now I've opened my office a couple of weeks ago again, um, got up the courage to do that uh, and feel that since COVID's going to be with us always, if we're ever going to see people in person, it might as well be now. And the treatments are good and the the vaccinations are, are significant proof against serious illness. Uh, and and uh, some patients are able to tell me that it's harder being back in the room in a way that is important to the work, that that difficulty needs to come into focus. Uh, with children, some of the children that I've seen, they just can't do the work online. Some can mm -hmm. and can play online. But if, for instance, a child plays by turning off the computer, you're kind of out of business. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> As, and that would be different if yeah. they're in your office and they go hide in the corner of the room. That yeah. you can work with. Um, so I, there are children that I really felt I, I've just had to see in person. I think that's the biggest group where the, the difference really matters. Yeah. Well, Dr. J. David Scharf, I really appreciate this opportunity to meet with you, and uh, uh, and it does feel like a, a really good contact, and uh, I appreciate uh, all the points of agreement that we have between us. I'm right. sure there would be some differences as well, but but I resonate to uh, so much of what you have done and, and are doing in very positive ways. And uh, so I want to thank you for all that. And thanks for being my thank guest. Thank you, David. Today. Thanks for the chance to chat about it, which I've enjoyed very much. I've enjoyed meeting you and being able to explore these things.
Thanks to my longtime listener, fan, and friend, Mahiar Alinagi in Tehran, for urging me to interview world-class psychoanalyst David E. Scharf, M.D. He did not disappoint. I had already interviewed his wife, Jill Savage Scharf, M.D. This dynamic duo of psychoanalytic Scharfs are not only marital partners, but professional collaborators over their marriage of a half-century or so. They've written books together, founded a psychoanalytic institute, and created analytic training programs together and more. At the same time, they both have their own independent therapy practices. I thought maybe my interview with Dr. Jill might prove sufficient coverage, but my friend Mahiar insisted an interview with Dr. David Scharf would be more than worthwhile. Turns out Mahiar was right. I've previously shared with my audience that my own early exposure to psychoanalytic practice in graduate school was fairly off-putting. It seemed authoritarian, judgmental, and excessively pathological in its orientation. At the same time, I have to say it provided me with a powerful theory of the unconscious that I've come to value. And having had the opportunity to meet a number of very personable, humane, and charming analysts via this podcast, I've been able to overcome the negative bias of my young graduate school days. Unlike me, Dr. David Scharf came to the field with a positive bias based on his early reading of Freud in high school, I think, and analysts among his parents' acquaintances. As an undergraduate, he began in an engineering program, which he found boring, and switched his emphasis to literature and history. He realized he wanted to work with people, and medical school turned out to be a good way to avoid getting drafted during the Vietnam War. In medical school, he discovered that psychiatry strongly appealed to him. The psychiatric training was Freudian-based, and that led to an opportunity to go to London and the Tavistock Clinic there, where the object relations approach was being formulated by such pioneering personalities as Melody Klein, D.W. Winnicott, and Ronald Fairbairn, among others. The opportunity to study with these seminal thinkers set Scharf's theoretical orientation for the rest of his career. In our interview, I speculated that Scharf's early engineering aptitude may have had something to do with him figuring out how to do online telehealth therapy and training as early as 1989, when the internet was quite new and well before such tools as Zoom and Skype. Also, I believe his studies in London with analysts from a variety of countries may have helped set the pattern for what turned out to be a very international career. Also, I might mention here that he met his wife, Jill, at the Tavistock Clinic, and she was from Scotland, so the two of them had an international marriage at the very start. David Scharf and I were able to form a very warm bond in the course of our hour-long online meeting. We came together as strangers, but in that short time parted as friends. So for me, the big takeaway from this interview was the insight that we are age mates. I'm a year older than he is. So we both lived through the 50s, 60s, and 70s in which huge cultural and world-changing transformations reshaped psychology, psychotherapy, education, and pretty much everything else. As a consequence, David and I share quite a bit of these cultural forces that flowed through us and to some extent shaped us both. We are each separate individuals with our own careers, but cooked in the same vat. As you listen to our interview, see if you can get a sense of what I'm talking about. Hello, Dr. Dave. My name is Clive Van Hilton, and I started listening to Shrink Rap Radio just a couple of weeks ago. I've listened to about six episodes now. I'm not a 
practitioner as such, just somebody who you know likes to work on it, work on his head kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, and self development, my spiritual self development is is something that's important to me and becoming more important to me. And I just want to thank you for the great resource that is your podcast and the therapist that one can listen to by means of it. And I just want to again give you my thanks and to say that I've set up a recurring monthly PayPal donation to help support the show. Thanks so much for for doing this and bringing it your knowledge and the knowledge of all of your guests to a much wider audience and all of us on the internet, basically. Okay. Thanks very much indeed, and uh, please carry on the great work. Thank you. Thank you, Clive Van Hilton, for your support and endorsement. Not a therapist, you say, but working on your head and spirituality which is celebrated here, and I hope you continue to get that. And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. Your regular donations really help to keep me going. So once again, it's time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my guest psychoanalyst, David Sharp, MD, a senior clinician, pioneer, and innovator. I really appreciate the warm relationship we were able to develop during this interview. Next week, my guest will be professor and environmental scientist Salim H. Ali on how natural laws define human life. Once again, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and the earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.